Hello, and welcome to You Can't Make This Shit Up, a true crime podcast. I'm Cassie, a true crime enthusiast. And I'm her dad, Mark, a true crime professional. I'm currently a traffic homicide investigator in South Florida. And we're going to discuss some of our favorite true crime cases. So hope you guys enjoy. going to be talking about the buddha fields buddha fields and you've never heard of this huh i have not and this is a you told me a cult or something yes okay so it's pretty crazy it's pretty fun and also i thought it was interesting because this cult is pretty current oh really yeah oh wow okay so I got a lot of my information. There's a really cool documentary called Holy Hell. Holy Hell. So unfortunately, because it's such a new cult by, you know, cult standards, there's not a, a whole lot of information, pretty much just from kind of the same ex-members who have come out publicly. So okay. I got a lot of my information from the documentary. I also got some information from really good articles where they interview some of the people. So I'll link all that in the show notes. Excellent. Okay. All right. The documentary actually was executively produced by Jared Leto. Oh, okay. It centers around a former member, Will, and his two sisters, who were all three part of the cult. So Will is the one who actually made the documentary himself. Okay, all right. Will and his sisters were born into a Catholic family and raised in Southern California. All three siblings reported feeling pretty disillusioned with the Catholic religion from fairly early on in childhood. Okay. Uh, So in 1985, Will graduated from film school and he moved back to his childhood home after graduation. Upon discovering that Will was gay... His mother kicked him out of the house and refused to support him in any way. Okay. And Will claims that this is what led him to join the Buddha field, primarily because obviously he had nowhere else to go. The Buddha field. Okay. Prior to this, his sister Amy was the first member out of the family to join the Buddha field. So when Will was kicked out of the house, she invited Will and her other sister, whose name is Lori, to join as well. Okay. Okay. Will attended his first meeting in West Hollywood, California. All right. They they called these meetings satsang. So I looked up what it means. It's according to Google Dictionary. It's an Indian word for, quote, a spiritual discourse or sacred gathering. Okay. It was here that Will first met the leader of the Buddha field, a man who went by the name of Michelle Rostand. So Michelle is an extremely interesting looking guy. He's first of all gay. Um, He only wears Speedos and eyeliner. Oh, my goodness. Okay. And it's obvious that he has a lot of plastic surgery. Okay. When you you look at it. So it's funny because in the documentary, there are parts where some of the members, they interview them and they say, oh, I I never knew he had plastic surgery till, you know, towards the end of our experience and blah, blah, blah. And I, I was watching it. I'm like, how did you not know, girl? Okay. It's like that obvious, you know, like plastic face obvious. Right. And he's a, he's of what, like, descent? Like, what is he? So we're going to get into it. Oh, okay. Okay. So I'll let you know. Okay. There's very little known about Michelle's past. All that I could find that's been published is that his birth name is actually not Michelle. It's Jamie Gomez or Jaime. <laughs> okay. He is the, he was the son of a wealthy rancher and he grew up in Venezuela. Okay. As an adult, he became a professional dancer with the Oakland Ballet, and he originally immigrated to America in order to become a movie star. Mm, Everybody's dreams. So his big claim to fame is that he was an extra in Rosemary's Baby. Really? That's the claim to fame. 
Yeah. So it's funny because they talk about it in the documentary, how he always brags about how I was in Rosemary's baby, but it's, they show the clip and it's literally two seconds. You know, the, have you ever seen Rosemary's baby? No, it's a good movie. You should watch it. But there is like a part where they're having a party in the apartment and it's literally a two second clip where he's just in the background of the party. Really? Yeah. He didn't even have a line. No. (laughs) Okay. So of his first meeting with Michelle, Will said, quote, he spoke as if he had gone into the cosmos and come back and was here to tell us about it and take us there. I'm going to give you some examples because they, in the documentary, they show actual footage of right. some of these meetings. So you, you get to see like real footage of it, which is pretty cool. Right. So this is so, some of the examples of, of his Cosmo talk as Will calls it, which okay. we'll see what you think about it. If it truly sounds like he comes from the cosmos. Okay. Well, okay. I mean, I'm no authority on the cosmos, so, <laughs> but I'll do my best to decipher. Here's one quote. If you think of tomorrow, you're unhappy. If you think of the past, you can become miserable and happiness is wherever you are. Okay. <laughs> so um, it, that's literally the, heavy. as soon as Will says he, he sounded like he was from the cosmos. That's what they show him saying. And I was like, just sounds <laughs> like a bunch of bullshit to me, but all right. <laughs> sounds like uh, today was tomorrow yesterday. One of those type of... Uh, yeah, it's just yeah. like random, you know, yeah. sayings that have no actual meaning. <laughs> so Michelle tells his followers at these meetings that he used to have a master himself who led him to a great spiritual awakening. And now he has become a master and it is his duty on earth to lead his followers to their own great spiritual awakening. Okay. So typical beginning of every cult. Well, I was, I was going to add that's a question because I'm not real like familiar with how people are actually drawn to cults or whatever. So like, is this just, was this like a group of people just hanging out and this, uh, the Will and the Amy brothers and sisters, they kind of like were invited by people to just kind of come to this meeting type of situation. Yeah. So it's basically the way that they kind of market it and they talk, we'll talk about it more later too, but the way that they kind of market it is it's basically like a church. Okay. You know, they're, it's the same way, like, you know, people invite you to go to their church and hang out and like experience it. His is more, and not really like a Christian variety church. He is more into like Buddhism. um, Spirituality type of. Right. So he's taking bits and pieces that clearly not all from the religion. Kind of using it for his own ends. Right. So at first I was kind of thinking like, how does anyone fall for this bullshit? But then in the documentary, one of the ex-members, Chris, who's like my favorite ex-member. So we'll talk about him a lot. All right. He made a really good point. He said, quote, I wanted a mentor. I wanted somebody who was going to guide me. They do this in India all the time. There's there's gurus there. This is just a modern day version of that in America. End quote. So I, I mean, he kind of has a point it all at first, it's nothing out of the ordinary as far as, you know, that's what priests and pastors do as well. You know, they're just like spiritual guides. So yeah, some of the, like, I guess, historically, some of the, the um, more outlandish cults, like, you know, the Branch Davidians or the, um, you know, the Jonestown, I think that I think it's always people that are, I used to say that they were simple minded, which I, I don't like to say anymore, but they're just people that are looking for some type of direction. They have no direction in their life and they're looking for whether like this guy says a mentor or just like a path in life and, you know, something to believe in, something to be a part of a culture. So I've, you know, I used to think that they were just crazy and, you know, simple minded people that were just brainwashed and stuff. But I mean, that's part of it, them being brainwashed, but it's people that are truly looking for something for 
for something more than themselves and they end up getting caught up. That's exactly how they describe it. Like in all of the interviews I've read with all these former members, they all, they also all, which I'm about to go into in a second, but they all came from really horrible backgrounds, like childhoods. So I think that cult leaders who are ultimately, you know, narcissists, sometimes psychopaths. I think that they target people that they know are. Yeah, well, of course they prey on, they they figure out like they see their weaknesses and stuff like that. So they're able to target them. So for sure. So in the, in the documentary, it kind of opens with everyone talking about where they came from. So I'm just going to list a few of them. Okay. And some of these people we'll hear about again. One ex-member is named Felipe. He grew up in a family of hippies, and he said he had very little supervision or guidance growing up. The next one, Demetrius, he grew up in a very violent neighborhood in Chicago, and he said he never experienced real love as a child. Uh, Murdy, he grew up in a very strict fundamentalist Christian family where he said he was taught to fear God. And basically, you know, wasn't allowed to do pretty much anything. Right. A girl named Alessandra, her mom kicked her out of the house when she was only 15 years old. Um, So she said she was in desperate need of stability, which when I heard that one, I was like, which you'll probably know the answer to this, at least in the state of Florida. Can't you get in trouble for kicking your kid out when they're underage like that? Yeah. I mean, yes, you can. Child abuse or child neglect or whatever. Yeah, you can't. At 15, how can you just be like, bye? It happens all the time, though. Kids run away, drop out of school, whatever, 15, 16 years old is kind of the age when it happens. And they just kind of make their way. And if nobody's looking for them or no one's reporting them, especially the parents that don't want them. Yeah, because this one, she was kicked out. She didn't leave willingly. Yeah, because trust me, there's plenty of kids that are being looked for that aren't found. So the ones that are, you know, naturally, they're either kicked out by their parents because of whatever the reason is, you know, they're definitely not going to be reported or, you know, so unless like school teachers or something like that report, you know, but I doubt that there was a, a good school, you know, background there or, you know, any type of uh, what's the word, I guess, uh, positive, like parental interaction. Guidance. So, yeah. yeah. So, you know, so but my, my a lot of people get, you know, swept by the wayside and nobody looks for them. So which is sad, very sad, but that's, you know, well, luckily, Alessandra, we'll see later. She she does well for herself. So good, good. But Chris, my favorite follower, he, he said he grew up with, quote, a major problem with authority and that he got into a lot of trouble as a child and, and as a young adult prior to because he joined really, really young. Like, I think he he said he joined he was the only, cult really young. Yeah. Like, I think he, he was only like 18 or 19. Oh, wow, okay. Jennifer, she said that as a child, she experienced a lot of abuse, although she doesn't go into what type of abuse. Um, And she stated that while she was growing up, multiple family members attempted suicide. Yeah. With yeah, within her immediate family. So I don't know if that's like siblings or her parents or who, but multiple family members were trying to like kill themselves. Okay, an all around bad time. So then Lori, which is Will's younger, younger sister, she said that she had suffered from a severe eating disorder for the majority of her life. And she doesn't really go into details and I couldn't find anything in any of my research, but she also was previously raped. Oh, okay. So all these people definitely had trauma. Some type of trauma in their childhood or raising or upbringing. So like you were saying, I think that's why they were looking for something like greater, you know? 
Yeah. So the majority of these people, they, like I said, they'd all come from horrible or unstable backgrounds. And they all said that they were in search of love in a reliable, stable family because they'd never had that. Right. So in the documentary, Will says, quote, the people that were there were looking for spirituality, but all of a sudden you had a built-in family. Right. People with like-minded had similar, you know, aspirations and goals and all searching for the same thing. Family togetherness, the basic human, you know, we're tribal and we're, you know, we've always been from, from the get-go, what, regardless of what, whether you believe in the big bang theory or whatever, we're always historically, we're tribal. We are, whether it's, you know, through countries, through culture, through religion, cavemen days, you know, we were tribal. That's how you survive. And you want to be, you know, you have a sense of belonging. So it's. Well, it's, and I can, I can see where yeah. that would be attractive, especially yeah. growing up and never having that and never feeling like you were a part of a family or whatever the well, case imagine may be. If you were, if you're an outcast, let's uh, not even an outcast, but like, you know, even some of the kids today that are getting to get into like goth or emo or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden you're in a group of people that believe the same things and dress the same and you're accepted and it's normal. There's no judgment. There's no, you know, so naturally, regardless of what it is, whether it's religion or whatever, people are going to be, if that's what you're into and you found people that are into it as well, naturally you're going to want to, you know, stay around them and, you know, have a life. So, you know, totally understandable. Well, and I think cults, at least all the ones that I've researched, they all kind of start off really cool. Right. You know, there's they start off and you're like, man, I could get down with that. That's pretty right. like cool. But like, it's just over the years, it slowly and slowly and slowly becomes crazier and crazier and crazier. Right. The, yeah. The beliefs change or the, the leader gets, you know, too much power or whatever. Or yeah. I mean, they all ultimately, unfortunately, all the ones that I've know, you know, that have been in the news and stuff like that have never ended well. So <laughs> unfortunately. Well, spoiler, spoiler alert. This this cult is actually still going on today. Is it? Okay. All right. That'd be interesting. I've never heard of them. So this is interesting. I, th- I just thought this was funny. One of the ex-members, Vera, in the documentary, she says, quote, she, well, she said that she had called her dad. This is when she first joined and she was all excited about, you know, like we were talking about finding her group. And right. she, she said, she said, quote, dad, I want to, I want to give my life to God. And he was on the next flight out there to come and get me. Wow. I was like, that's what you would do if I called you. I was like, dad, I'm giving my life to God and I'm in a cult. Yeah, well, no, not that I, you say you're in a cult, I guess. Right, but. But, yeah, no, pack your bags coming. <laughs> but yeah, apparently he tried to come get her and she like refused to leave. Uh, that happened a lot too. That happened a lot like in with the Branch Davidians, with the Jonestown and all those, you know family there's numerous interviews and stuff on some of the documentaries on those that where families tried to get their their people back or their you know their siblings back or whatever and and couldn't and was too late you know like that whole jonestown one is well and they talk about how which we'll talk about later on in this but they they talk about how hard it is to save people from cults because since they're adults obviously unless they're minors if they're adults they have you know there's the cops aren't going to help you they have every right right to do whatever they want Absolutely. 100%. That's the problem. So, and they're brainwashed and they say, you go and talk to them and you're like, Oh, this is great. I love being here. And okay, well, we can't do anything about it. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Which, you know, should be the case in, in the sense that people should have the freedom to do what they want to do, but. Right. The problem is you don't realize until it's too late, usually that there's a lot of bad things going on. So. Right. Then, but unfortunately our hands are tied with, you know, it's the, the rights of the, the constant, you know, provided by the constitution. When you're an adult, you have a lot of rights and you don't want to do things and people can't force you to do things. And until it's too late, we have to be, we're reactive 
more than proactive, which is for all sure. I know is if one of my kids joined a cult, I'd be kidnapping their ass. Yeah, well, of course, that's a, a no brainer. So many of the ex-members claimed that they were so impressed by Michelle that he was a genius, that he was extremely intelligent and spoke four languages. Mm-hmm. So I'll tell you, watching it and actually watching real footage of him, like, I guess, preaching or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't get it. I no. don't. He doesn't come across as extremely That's intelligent. Charismatic. To me. Nothing like. No. And he just he just. Does he wear his hair in a ponytail? No. So he actually has short hair. Oh, OK. All right. But there's very they're very strict about looks, which we'll get to in a little bit. It, he just speaks a lot of mumbo jumbo. Like he talks in circles. And it makes no sense at the end of the day. So I just think it's funny watching all these like old like induction videos and stuff because they're like anybody would be taken in by his wit and his charm. And he was so funny. And I'm like, I don't think he's funny. He makes a bunch of dad jokes that are not funny. Oh, well, I mean, that's historically those leaders, those um, the cult leaders or group leaders or whatever. They're usually very charismatic. They're very gregarious and they talk to you and they make you feel you know bigger than life. And they, you know, so... Uh, I, I, but if they actually have video of him being like a knucklehead or whatever, then, <laughs> you know, but well, that's historically how they get him is, you know, the, the leader is usually very captivating or the, the people around them, they talk very well and very, you know, um, again, charismatic and they make you, they, you hear what you want to hear and, you know, you, you, you buy into it essentially. Which they did say, and like all the ex-members basically said that he was, which is a classic sign of a narcissist is they make initially, they make you feel like you're the only one in the room, you know, like that you're extra special. Right. Yep. That's exactly it. So here's a, another quote that th- this is them describing him in the in the beginning when the cult was first forming. Quote, he was a contemporary. He wasn't some little old man with a great beard sitting in a dhoti. He was wearing Speedos and Ray-Bans, you know, and he was dancing and he was doing, you know, contemporary music. I mean, I can get that in the sense that I'm sure, especially because this is also in the 80s, remember? Okay, so yeah, I'm, okay, I'm sure they fine. felt very progressive, like that their leader was gay and openly gay because you know i mean even nowadays that would be progressive right well especially yeah back then for sure 30 years ago absolutely you know in their mind he dressed cool like you know like they said it was the 80s he was wearing like the bright colored little speedos and ray-bans right you know i'm sure they felt like oh we're going against the grain and you know we're we're the cool kids right yeah like we're the cool church yeah they were becoming um they were being accepted by like-minded people and in a place where they didn't have to hide or, you know, bury their beliefs or whatever. So naturally that's very, you know, that's very appealing to a lot of people. So people want to believe. I'm I'm not going to lie. That would be appealing to me. Like I'm, I'm wouldn't say that I'm overly religious, but I would definitely be drawn more so to a church that, you know, is LGBT friendly, obviously, because I'm not going to, I'm really passionate about that. So I'm not going to go to a church where they're talking about the gays are going to burn in hell. Right. Yeah. Like that Southern, oh, wait, I'm not even going to, don't even say their names. I don't even know their names, but that crazy (laughs) ass church, I'm not giving them any. Well, the South is full of lots of crazy ass churches. That's all I'll say about that. We'll just, yeah, we'll let it, we'll let it be. So Michelle promised that if, if you followed his many rules and fully committed yourself to the process, eventually he would assist you in reaching a spiritual, a spiritual nirvana, just like he had with his master. So here are the rules. Are you ready? Okay. No mind altering substances. So no drugs, no alcohol, no caffeine. Wow. So you had to eat clean. Okay. Absolutely no sex. 
Michelle claimed, quote, what happens during sexual orgasm is a little death. One who has experienced the orgasm of meditation, that's the greatest orgasm. Okay. Many of the members, though, in the documentary and in other uh, articles, right, I read. like rabbits, weren't they? Oh, yeah. They yeah. said they admitted that they were basically like having sex left and right. There were a few members who in the documentary, it was so funny. One girl was like, I didn't have sex for three years because I didn't realize everyone else was humping like rabbits. And no one told me. And they used to jokingly behind Michelle's back, they would jokingly refer to it as the booty field (laughs) instead of the Buddha field. (laughs) Nice. A few other rules. Each member had to eat healthy and work out regularly. Okay. Positive things. Each accepted member had to be physically beautiful and had to do their best to remain so. So if you see all these members, they're all extremely hot. Okay. Hey. (laughs) Each member must attend weekly, they called them cleansings, where Michelle would meet with each member privately and use hypnotherapy in order to psychologically, quote, treat each member and prepare them for their meeting with God. AKA Michelle, well, Michelle was act was actually a, a, a licensed hypnotherapist and a behavioral therapist in the state of California. Mm-hmm. There you go. On top of that, you you were required to go to a week, uh, one cleansing a week, but he also would charge you fifty dollars for each cleansing. Oh, okay, all right. So during these sessions, Michelle would hypnotize the person by saying, quote, I'm going to count to 10 and you will go down the steps back in time, down the steps. <laughs> okay. He would direct the person to go back to a time of great trauma in their lives. He would then snap his fingers and ask the person where they were, how old they were, etc. And many ex-members admitted that during these sessions, they would divulge everything to Michelle, even their greatest fears and secrets. Michel directed all of his disciples to never disclose to anyone else what went on or what was discussed within their personal cleansing meetings. He claimed that if they told, it would inhibit their spiritual growth. And as a result of his great spiritual prowess, he would immediately know if you had lied and told somebody. One ex-follower said, quote, the thing was that he was a hypnotherapist. That means he had his finger in the psyche of every person he was dealing with and every person he dealt with in every person he dealt with completely differently. So he manipulated each and every personality that way. Of course. And then they all wanted to be there. So imagine they freely believed him. And so the I'm sure the hypnotherapy or whatever worked, you know, he was able to, you know, brainwash him or whatever it is, hypnotize him, whatever. But yeah, imagine you're there like of your own free will and you're believing and buying into this. And naturally he's got you. Well, and especially him being an actual licensed therapist, like you really know how to fuck with people's minds. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely like, yeah, yeah. You studied, you, you know, I mean, who knows how much practice or experience he had prior to, you know, him starting this or whatever, but yeah, I mean, he just, he knows the human brain. So additionally, each member, this is a fur- further rules. Each member had to give money to whatever cause was important to the group at that time. So if something had to be bought or built for the group, everyone had to pitch in to make sure it happened. Each member had to contribute close to 40 hours a week in what Michelle called service. So anything he deemed needed to be accomplished, his followers were expected to accomplish it without pay. So (laughs) here are some examples of various service activities. So some of them, I'm not going to lie, are pretty cool. And then some of them, I'm like, if you want me to do that, you better pay me. (laughs) Okay. Gardening was one. 
building various things. So like if he needed a shed built or, you know, anything like that, they had to build it. Cleaning Michelle's home, cooking for Michelle. Hmm. This this is one of the cool ones that I was like, okay, that I could get down with. So I guess there were uh, initially a few quadriplegics that were in the group and the other members were expected to help them throughout the day, Okay, which that was, I was like, that's sweet. Yeah. Do they all live together? Like on a compound is. So we're going to, we're going to get there. Okay. All right. Will, because of his film background, because remember he went to film school, right? he basically quit his job and was told to just be the group's filmographer. Okay. So he would create films to promote Michelle's teachings and encourage basically other people to join. Right, propaganda. Um, so eventually, I just thought this was kind of a fun fact. Eventually, there's a few members of the group created these hair combs, which were called wings. Do you remember those from the 80s? No. So it's like, I as soon I didn't know it by name, but as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, I, kn- I remember those. So it's like, um, they're like those, t- like two combs that come together and you put like all your hair up and you can just go like this. And remember oh, yeah, in the yeah, 80s, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was like yeah. big bushy the, hair. You're almost like a clamp. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they invented those. One of the, really? one of, one of the members invented it. Wow. Okay. And uh, Will filmed the commercial for it, and they began to generate a profit on all the money that they sold from those. So the the member that invented that basically donated all the it to the group, and they that's how they were making money is off those wings. Unreal. So all that money would go towards basically the Buddha field, whatever needed to be done, and Michelle's travels. Oh, of course. Because we'll find out he goes on these big elaborate vacations that are you know for spiritual purposes, of course. Yeah, I bet. One ex-member, Julian, was directed by Michelle. This was his service that he had to. He was directed by Michelle to make him a fruit salad every morning. So this guy went above and beyond with the fruit salad. They actually show pictures of, of the actual fruit salads he made in the documentary. And they're insane. So he would literally like take fruit and carve Buddhas out of them. He even made one that was the entire image of the Last Supper out of fruit. Wow. So he would spend hours, he said, like making these fruit salads because they were for Michelle and, you know, they had to be like perfect. Perfect, right, yeah. <laughs> eventually, I, I laughed at this. So eventually he found out that Michelle wasn't even eating the fruit salad. What? He was having another member pour them into a blender and make a fruit smoothie. So he was spending hours creating these like huge, like sculpted fruit salads that were just getting put into a blender. <laughs> unreal just to make but, the guy do something i guess that yeah but but julian kept making the fruit salads anyway because he told even after him, he found out because he told himself he was making them for god so okay so he believed him now to be god yeah so this is where it starts to switch where they believe that he it's kind of like a father son holy spirit kind of thing where right. like he's a man yet he's god yet he's a man yeah. You're starting to ascend. Okay. All right. All of the most serious members were with each other 24 seven. So they lived together. So they own, they owned basically a, or, or rented a few homes in the same area okay. and they would all like roommate up in these houses. So they worshiped together. It was basically communal living. Everyone helped with food, cooking, cleaning, and they would go to work, those that were actually, you know, still working, and they right. would donate pretty much all of their money yeah, to they, the group. They give everything, right? Yeah, they give everything up. Demetrius, he said, quote, in the early days, we joked, if this is a cult, at least it's a really good cult. <laughs> so they already knew from the get go. Well, and I'm like, what's so good about it? I don't understand. You're giving all your money away to this thing. You're, he's forcing you to do all of this labor for free. Uh, again, 40, I think, 40 hours a week. 
I think it all goes back to the community though, like in being part of something and everybody's doing it. It's not like you're the only one that has to do it. So it's, you want to be a part of this, you know, cult culture, whatever the price to pay. And there's other people that are naturally they've gotten along with or become friends with, or have been having sex with. So right. you know, it's a community. So they're like, okay, well, we all got to do it. So this is how we have this nice, happy life. That's which, you know, that's, and, and to be honest, a lot and of, that's why it works a lot. That's why it works initially for quite a long time because people buy into it. It's when, you know, you're into it for a few years or whatever, or one gets out and you start looking in and going, wait a second, something's wrong. You know, like, well, and a lot of churches do encourage members to do service, quote unquote. Yeah. You know what right. I mean? Like churches, that, yeah, they're required. Like a lot of churches, what you know, they, what's it called, tithing, or whatever, where you you know give money to the church, and you know it's supposed to help the other members in the church that need it and all that stuff. You know, so the idea of it is, I, th- I want to say positive, and it's probably in its origins, but naturally has been exploited like everything else. You know, in the time of man, so. <laughs> Well, it just, yeah, I feel like anything that's controlled by humans ultimately is just fallible and it's going to be corrupt more often than not. Correct. So finally, the members, they all go on a retreat and it's, they called it the Shakti retreat, which took place in the forests of Arcata, Arcata, California. Okay. Shakti is this idea that the master, which is Michelle, could transfer holy energy into each disciple. They show, they video, uh, Will filmed all of this because he was the filmographer. So we have like actual footage of it. Uh, okay. All he would do is he would meditate for a second and he would take his thumb and rub it on wh- whichever disciple he's working with on their forehead. Okay. And supposedly energy would transfer from his thumb into them. All of the ex-members, even to this day, claim that they legitimately felt an energy transference. They said they would feel as if they were high afterwards, but obviously they hadn't taken any drugs because they weren't, you know, they were Mm -hmm. sober. They claim to feel a current and see things and hear sounds. Of the experience, my favorite Chris said, quote, I was experiencing an LSD-like state. Colors were moving around him. There was a phenomenon attached to this now. It's not just these good feelings I'm having. Now there's this like flashing light happening inside of me, end quote. Yeah, he's rubbing something on their forehead that's being absorbed through the skin and LSD, whatever. I mean, they're tripping. Okay, see, I was, it's interesting you say that because I have a note later. I was like, do you think that he was just secretly like drugging them? Yes. Yes. He probably had some type of vessel near him or something and he would wet his, you know, cause LSD is a liquid or essentially, I mean, it's always put like on blotter. It's like a, a liquid that's put on either like you know, paper, right? tube or paper or whatever. And then, yeah, you eat it. So uh, who's to say that he didn't figure out a way to wet his thumb and push it onto your, th- you know, your forehead. Yeah, because he would like rub it. Like if you watch the yeah. videos, he he's basically like rubbing his thumb like really hard against their forehead. Yeah, and you need just the tiniest little micro dose to to have an effect from it. So naturally, he puts a big glob on his thumb. Some of it's going to get through, you know, through your forehead or whatever. And there you go, you're high. LSD. That's so interesting because I was I, I when I first watched the documentary, I I didn't even think that. I just thought, oh, they're so brainwashed that they like you know, have yeah, convinced yeah, right. themselves. Sadly, my brain goes straight to worst case scenario. And once you said he touches them and there's a transfer there. Okay. And now you're, now they're saying they're having these trips or these LSD type of, okay, well, that's because the, you know, the skin absorbs everything. You, you know, you could put anything on your skin and your body's going to absorb it. So there's no reason why you can't put LSD on your thumb and rub it on the forehead. And there you go and wait five minutes and Hey, 
Yeah, I had you. Well, and we find out later that he did fake a lot of stuff. So I would that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and who knows, like what he was, you know, how, how he transferred, like what he had with him. Like, I'm sure there was some ceremonial. He was transferring this energy. So naturally, right. there was be ceremonial wine or, you know, liquid or. Well, that's the other thing I thought I didn't I didn't think about like he I didn't think about him actually doing it like through his finger. I was thinking like, oh, maybe he put some in the like, you know, group water or like right. whatever well, they're mean, drinking. Right. I'm sure. That, I mean, there's any I mean, you would have to like look at the retreat or whatever, you know, the, the ceremony or whatever. And like, you know, how it occurred. But um, my first guess would be that he touched everybody. So more than likely, that would be the initial. That's my first, you know, naturally without knowing anything else. But but yeah, it could be that's what happens in Jonestown. They, you know, they put poison in the Kool-Aid and made it right. Kool-Aid. So. Um, you know, so it's just, however it was delivered, you know, we would have to research that, you know, being that it's an active cult, we probably won't get those details right now, but maybe we will, maybe we can, if we researched it more, but there was definitely a transfer of something. Something. Yeah. Because <laughs> all of them said it wasn't because if it was just like a few of them saying like, Oh, I felt like this, I, I might be like, okay, well. They all described the same thing, right? Yeah. That's a hallucinogenic. And, and to this day, like even the, the ex-members. Right. It's the same type. So you're using the exact same chemical or drug. And so naturally everybody, naturally everybody's going to have a different reaction to it per se, but the symptoms or the side effects are essentially the same because it's the same drug. Naturally, everybody's going to experience it a little bit different. Like one person will say, Oh, I saw red lights. And the other person will be like, I saw blue lights. Well, they saw lights. So, right. you know, so it's like the same, the, the media or the same, the transfer of, you know, the, the, the drug itself is the same naturally bodies are different humans are different so you're going to process it different but essentially you know the the, the basics are going to be the same so crazy yeah, yeah. so there was a, a step within their spiritual practice that was even greater than shakti because shakti is what we just talked about with right, the okay, transference right. of energy through the thumb okay um so this was called the knowing the knowing okay so members were told that michelle would set aside a day and on that day each member would be able to come to Michael and ask him for quote, the direct experience of God. <laughs> so the knowing, I guess, is based on the book Bhagavad Gita, which is a Hindu book in which Krishna, which is a Hindu deity reveals yeah. the direct experience of God to his disciple Arjuna. So those who were chosen for the knowing would basically be able to see God and become one with him. So it's like the ultimate nirvana, basically. Okay. Eventually, it was decided that the knowing would take place in 80, in 89, 1989, my, the year of my birth, mm -hmm. and would occur on another retreat. So this is the second retreat. And this one takes place in Mammoth Lakes, California, also in the forest. Okay. At this retreat, the disciples built Michelle this huge wooden throne, and it, they had a huge rainbow backdrop behind it. It was It's quite a sight to see. So each disciple would basically walk up to the throne. Michelle would perform what they called an open eye meditation. So basically, Michelle would just stare at you into the eyes and you weren't allowed to blink for several minutes. And he <laughs> claimed he could see into their souls. Uh, right. So from that meditation and, and seeing into their souls, that allowed Michelle to determine if, if each disciple was ready to receive the knowing or not. While on this retreat. That's some very powerful stuff. Well, if you throw in some LSD and there you go. <laughs> While on this retreat, many received the knowing, but many did not. So for example, Amy, which is Will's sister that 
got Will and his younger sister to join. Right. She's one of the like original cult members. Right. She was not chosen to receive the knowing. Really? Michelle told her that she wasn't ready yet, although she was one of the original members and she had been with the Buddha field at that point for over six years. Wow. However, Will, who had been there for significantly less time, was was chosen to receive the knowing. <laughs> okay. So this is where some people start to get pissed off. Right. Yeah, because yeah. Why them and not me? I've been here. I've been putting in my time. Yeah. Now all of a sudden, what's up? Those who did receive the knowing, once again, they claim to experience visions for days oh. afterwards. Oh, I hope we caught that nose blow. <laughs> I tried to hide it. Because <laughs> I ain't cutting it out. Cut it out. <laughs> so many, once again, described it as feeling almost like an acid trip. Claiming they saw intense colors and patterns. Some said that they could even see the atoms which made up the earth. That's absolutely psychedelic, hallucinogenic, uh, LS, Lucy in the sky with diamonds. Lucy in the sky with diamonds. Yeah, I wonder if they were listening to some Beatles. You know, they they had some contemporary music. That's what they said. So I'm sure they were jamming out, although it was late 80s, the maybe. 80s, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. LSD wasn't a big... Well, you know, but LSD is a very, very popular in like mind control and, and in psychotherapy and stuff like that. So, you know, that's probably... He knew about that since he was, you know, educated in, in that field. So... Do you know who invented LSD? I do, but I don't remember the name. And as soon as you say it, I'll say that I know, but... I don't know the actual guy's name, but it was invented by the U.S. government. Yeah, but uh, in in, in Harvard, right? Wasn't it? Or there was like an experiment and... Yeah, they were testing it, which is is fucked up. They were testing it on uh, veterans. Well, right. But there was one specific doctor, though. Um, What was his name? He took it himself. Not Aleister Crowley. Um, Oh, hold on. We got research. Our research... Your research team has arrived. I bet you everybody... Albert Hoffman. There you go. Albert Hoffman. I bet you everybody who is listening right now was like screaming it at the. Yeah, I'm sure they were. They're like, Albert Hoffman, you idiots. Right. And then there was also, who was the guy that took, he's well known, he took uh, LSD like for 30 days or something, a genius. And then I'm going to have to research. I don't want to say the wrong stuff, but he ended up becoming like, he like became very mentally ill because of it. I read, um, I had to read it for one of my classes, the um, electric Kool-Aid acid test by Tom Wolf. I've heard of it. I've never like read it or know what it's about. But um, they talk in the in the book about like the creation of LSD and and how they were testing it on veterans because I yeah, guess was, they were originally, I, if I remember correctly, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure they were u- trying to figure out basically how to use it as like chemical warfare. Right. Yeah, they were using it for either positively for soldiers to help them in combat. Or negatively against like the enemy to, you know, it was like a germ warfare or whatever, you know. Yeah. It's just funny to me that the U.S. government's the one who invented it. And yet now they're pissed off and arresting people for using it. Oh, well, that's. And it's like you, you guys made it. Well, There's... not. You know, yes. the Yes. The, the government or the military, you know, experimented in all kinds of things. But the application in, in public sector is not what it was for. And that's where the that's where the problem becomes because it did get out and people started using it recreationally or whatever. And so it becomes an issue. And uh, I mean, but that's a whole nother. Well, if anyone's interested, read the electric Kool-Aid acid test. Cause it's, it's pretty damn good. There you go. Anyway, it was at this point, Michelle began telling followers that he was receiving visions from God regarding certain members. 
he would take these certain members aside and he would tell them that God informed him it was time for them to die. But he assured each of these members that he pleaded with God for his or her life. And as long as they stayed true to him and in the Buddha fields, God promised him that they would stay alive. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, you know, clearly that's he's he's trying to get people from leaving. Right. So he told Will that he was fated to have a terrible accident and that if he left the Buddha fields, he would unfortunately succumb to his injuries from these that terrible accident. He told one ex-member that if she were to leave, she would die a horrible death within a year. Let me ask you this. Does it say like in the documentary or maybe talk about it later, but these people that were being talked to by Michelle saying that, you know, you need to stay here so you don't die. Were they in the process of thinking, hey, I want to get out of this at that time? Like they started to have bad um, ideas or. They don't say that per se, but I, I just assumed that. And I mean, there had to be some sort of reasoning for him to choose those specific people. Like, right. Like you found out that they were disgruntled or whatever. Right. Okay. So he told Chris, which Chris is, you know, my favorite. He said that if he left, he would contract AIDS and die. Ouch. Yeah. So obviously these people all believed that because they believe they truly believed he like was connected to God, you know? So of course that made them extremely scared to, to leave. Right. So also during this time, Will was chosen to move in with Michelle and became his personal servant and masseuse. (laughs) So I guess Michelle worked out as obsessively and he danced ballet constantly because remember he used to be a professional ballerina. Or ballerino. Michelle required Will to give him multiple massages a day, claiming his body ached from his constant activity. (laughs) Will was expected to be on call 24 hours a day. These massages were called body works. (laughs) Will and a man named Philippe, uh, they both lived with Michelle and catered basically to his every need. So apart from doing the body workers, Philippe and Will were expected to cook, clean, and care for Michelle in any way that he may require. As personal servants, yeah. And it was seen as a great honor within the Buddha field to serve Michelle directly. Mm, Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So shortly (laughs) after moving in with Michelle, he demanded that Will and Philippe turn their living room into a ballet studio for his use. So they had to build a ballet studio in the living room. (laughs) Okay. So they built this studio from scratch. Actually pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, So soon he began, as soon as the uh, studio was built, he began forcing all of his disciples to dance in his studio for several hours a day, learning dances that he choreographed. Okay. So it's funny because in the, in uh, some of the articles, they, they ask about that because it's just like a funny (laughs) portion of the story. Right. Some of the people were like, I hated ballet. It was like the worst (laughs) part of my day, torturous. And then other people were like, I actually, I mean, to this day, I still, I liked that part. (laughs) One of those things you either love it or you hate it. I mean, (laughs) I don't think in between there, but. Well, and the funny part is that they, you know, they have video of all this, like actual footage so it's funny to to watch it because some people you can just tell are naturally like talented and then there's some of the guys and stuff who are just like dancing with two left feet and you're like oh you poor little baby (laughs) i just gotta be here by this point there were about 150 members in buddha field so michelle gave each member a new name claiming that a new name would help the disciples move beyond their past so he basically renamed them and they were they had to be referred to by their new names 
Okay. So these are just some examples that I thought were interesting. So Amy, which is the oldest sister of Will that like got them to join. Mm -hmm. Her name became Emiliana. (laughs) Okay. Lori, which is his younger, Will's younger sister. This I found funny because her name, it's pronounced Crystal. Like that's how they pronounce it in the documentary, but it's spelled C-R-I-S-T-A-L-A, which would be Cristala. Okay. <laughs> but they pronounce it crystal. Oh, crystal. Okay. Right. I'm like, then why is there a random A at the end? Yeah. Just like, to be fancy. Well, he is making up these names for everybody. So I guess he just, he, he even makes up phonetics. I guess if you're God, you can do whatever you want. Exactly. If you're a fuck phonetics. Exactly. So Will became Francesco. <laughs> okay. Which is kind of funny because if you see Will, he looks like a Francesco. Like you would oh. just, you would just picture him that like to be a Francesco. Oh, all right. He's like handsome and like and gay and like of course right. they're all like required to work out all the time. So he has this like great body. Right. I don't know, this like luscious brown locks. <laughs> okay. You know, it's the 80s, so he had the like flowing 80s hair. Yeah, like the fair faucet hair. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Also during this time, Michelle began instructing his disciples to detach from people outside of the group, including their family members. Mm, so yeah, I know, right? Colt 101. I was just about to say that cult 101. That's like. So they were instructed to go to their families and explain to them they would no longer be in contact with them. Imagine if I just came home one day and I was like, hey, hey, guys, thanks for having me for dinner. I just wanted to let you know that I'm never going to talk to you again. So. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Gotta Good go. Luck bye. Good luck with that. <laughs> Good luck with that. One member of the group, Vera, she was the one that said her dad tried to come and get her as soon as he found out she was dedicating her life to God. <laughs> she said that she was not even permitted to see her father, who was dying from cancer at that time. Um, Michelle told her that it was important for her spiritual growth to break the bond that she had with her father to overcome her past self. What a piece of crap. So she said that she would, in the documentary, she said that she would sit and order a plane ticket and then cancel it and order a plane ticket and cancel it. And that it was basically like psychologically and emotionally like torturous for her because she was, she grew up very close to her father. Right. And she never, she never got to see him before he died of cancer. So he died before she got a chance to. It's <sighs> yep. not sad. Yeah, it is sad. Those, those damn cults, man, they, they really wipe out some people's. Uh, you know. Which I'm sure she struggles with guilt from that. I mean, don't get me wrong. Sure. I know she was brainwashed and stuff, but. Still, like, I'm sure you would, I I would struggle with that, you know, at this point, many members, families started to become suspicious, obviously, because all their, all their, uh, all the members were, were like, sorry, gotta go, can't talk, bye. Right, yeah, like, they go into hiding or whatever. So one family actually hired a private investigator to investigate the group. And interestingly, the private investigator, I guess, came back to the family and told the family that it was a benign group and he didn't feel that they were threatening in any way and to just like not worry about it. Really? Which I thought was interesting. That is interesting. And hopefully he doesn't ever get any work again. Yeah, because he was wrong. Uh, You think? Spoiler alert. Yeah, I'm just gonna say, I don't know the ending, but (laughs) clearly if we're talking about it. (laughs) Now it's 1991. 
Okay. One member of the group started a, this is kind of the downfall. So this is what's, this is the catalyst, I guess. So one member of the group started a relationship with a man outside of the Buddha field. So this girl, they show video of her. They never say her name. So, and she wasn't a part of the documentary, Okay. Um, but she's no longer with the group now. That's all they like have said. One of the lucky ones. (laughs) But she is gorgeous. I'm talking supermodel gorgeous, like blonde, long, like straight hair, beautiful. Right. So the boyfriend began attacking the group publicly and, and basically claiming it's a cult because they were trying to stop him from seeing her because he wasn't a part of the Buddha field. Right. right. So eventually he went to the cult awareness network, which have you ever heard of that? No. So neither had I. I did some research on it. Cult awareness network. Yeah. So they call it can for oh. short. Yeah. Uh-huh. Apparently it's an organization which was started by Rick Ross, not the rapper. Okay. So I guess it's a cult specialist. Okay. When, when, when they said it was started by Rick Ross, I was like, no shit, Rick Ross, the rapper, started the rapper? a cult awareness network? What? No. Shut up. Apparently not. Okay. <laughs> this guy's just like a, a, a old white dude. But right. I guess he's like a psychologist and like a, he's, he considers himself a cult specialist. Okay. So he basically started this group to work to dismantle cults and deprogram members. So parents would pay the cult awareness network to go in and kidnap their children back like adult children and uh, they would basically like kind of kidnap these people and like hold them against their will to like deprogram them from the cult. Yeah. Yeah. To bring them back to. Right. So I guess this is just kind of a side story, which I found interesting. Rick Ross was actually put on trial for kidnapping. Really? Um, Yeah. Because he uh, attempted to, well, he didn't attempt. He he kidnapped a member, uh, a former, now a former member of the United Pentecostal church international. And he held them against their will for, I think it was over two weeks and really? to deprogram them. And when they were finally set free, they like pressed charges. Oh, shit. So the trial was held. That but he was hired by the family or something, I'm assuming, in that case, like to get this person out of. Yeah, he was group? hired. He was hired by it was uh, a mother who wanted her son kidnapped. Oh, OK. So he was hired by the mom to do it. I don't know. I don't know if like they paid for it. Like, I don't know if it's a nonprofit that they do it like voluntarily or if it's like paid for. I don't know how it works. But the trial was held in 1991. Rick was found not guilty. So then the the guy that he kidnapped ended up taking him to civil court and also the cult awareness network to civil court. And he ended up winning in civil court. So basically the cult awareness network ended up disbanding. Like this was, I think like later in like 96 or 95. Okay. But at this time, the cult awareness network starts investigating Buddha fields because this girl's boyfriend contacted them basically. Right. So he, he told them that they were holding his girlfriend against her will. So as this went on, Michelle became increasingly more paranoid He believed that he and his members were being watched and followed, which honestly, they probably were. Mm -hmm. Um, Eventually, he informed his followers that he could no longer work in such a hostile environment and the Buddha field needed to go into hiding and relocate. Right. Although here's my thing. If you're God, supposedly you're God, right? Yeah. Who are you scared of? Well, and what do you mean you can't work in a hostile environment? You're God. You can do anything. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And you're the, the almighty. Guess not. (laughs) So in the middle of the night, Michelle grabbed Will Philippe, which were, you know, the two live in people, his like live in servants. Got to have his massages. Can't he can't go without those. I know those are important. Uh, And his cook, because by this point, he also had a cook. Got to eat. 
And he told them to pack their bags, but he refused to tell them where exactly they were going. So he just woke them up in the middle of the night, said, pack your bags, we're out of here. The four went into hiding and traveled the country looking for where the group would go next. Okay. So meanwhile, the rest of the members stayed behind in Los Angeles, basically awaiting instructions from Michelle. Like no one, no one was told where he was, even the group members. He's no just like, yeah, he took off in the middle of the night and they were like, what up? Right. So during this time, he convinced his followers that his life was in danger. That's why he had to like run away in the middle of the night. Claimed that every spiritual leader had been murdered by society because society didn't approve of their ideas. So basically he was, you know, comparing himself to Jesus and saying (laughs) that he was going to be crucified. He is a God. Yeah. He's the, he's the new Jesus or modern day Messiah. He believed that if they weren't careful, he too would be murdered by an unjust and secular society. Ooh, sounds scary. Sounds pretty scary, <laughs> but, you know, I would think God would be almighty, but I've just heard that. Yeah. Maybe it's just a rumor. It's the rumor. That's, that's what I've heard. <laughs> Finally, after six months of traveling, so he's gone, he's traveling around for six months. Of course he is. Spending all the Buddha Fields money that everyone else is working for. Yeah, well, you know. Um, Michelle, can you? I want you to take a guess of where you think he ended up. It's in the United uh, States. In the United States, he ended up. He started off in Cali. He's got it. Was Florida somewhere? Florida. <laughs> <laughs> Florida would be good, but no. Oh, all right. Um, Las Vegas. I'll, I'll give you a hint. It's right. it's a state where, for some, I, I I learned this while researching this particular cult. Lots of cults end up there for some reason. Texas. Tejas, yes. Tejas, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once you he, said that, I was like, ah, oh, it's Texas. He ended up in Austin. <laughs> of course. Um, Michelle decided it was time for the rest of the group to rejoin him once he settled in Austin. He was there for like three months before he sent for the group. Okay. So he directed his disciples to move out in small groups to avoid notice. Okay. The members, even though they were given like a moment's notice, they were just expected to like break their leases, like up and leave, go. A lot of members sold their houses or if they were renting, they like just broke the out. lease right. and they, they took what they could carry and they immediately moved to Austin at Michelle's directive. Okay, we're going to stop here and then we'll pick it up next week for the rest of the Buddha field. For part two of the Buddha field. Yeah. Looking forward to it. All right. So we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.